welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. We're starting a new series this morning, friends. It's called Lost in Translation. This is backed by popular demand from last summer. We did a series called Lost in Translation. And the idea is essentially we're going to tackle difficult passage in Scripture, passages in Scripture, things that are hard to interpret or hard to understand or just are sort of weird. Uh, and so um, a series like this is, is a, an attempt to do a couple of things. Um, this is really about uh, asking hard questions. Something that we talk a lot about at Awaken is the permission to question and ask hard questions about faith and life and God. And so this is a series that certainly taps into that. Um, this is a series that wrestles with the Bible. Uh, the, the name of the people of God in the scriptures is Israel, and that literally means one who wrestles with God and man and is able. So connected to the name of God's people in the scriptures is this idea of wrestling with the text. All through the tradition, the norm is not, here's the answer, take it or leave it. That's actually abnormal for the tradition that we come from. Normal in the tradition that we come from is to wrestle with the text and grapple with it. So that's what we want to do. Um, this is a series that engages hermeneutics, which is basically the art and science of interpretation. So while we do this, what we're engaging and what I'm trying to teach us how to do is to read the Bible well. If you've ever been at a party where there's, or a situation where there are two different groups of people and they disagree on a particular passage or a topic, sometimes there's a grenade that's lobbed across that's like, well, those people, their commitment to scripture is less than ours, or they're not, the, the scripture isn't authoritative for them as it is for us. That's a complete misunderstanding. Usually what's at stake is not whether one is committed to scripture or whether it's authoritative in one's life, but how one interprets it. That's what's at question, or that's what's, what's being questioned. So this is a series that really dives into how do we read the Bible well. And, and this is a series that is hopefully um, honest and authentic about our faith and the Bible that is in front of us. So that's the journey that we're on. Uh, some people have said that I'm sort of a go big or go home, uh, jump in the deep end of the pool kind of guy. And so this morning only serves to confirm that both of those are true. We will be uh, starting with a passage that is wild, if I could say anything about it. Before I read it, I wanted to say there are, um, uh, in front of you, there are pieces of paper, and we've never done this before. Cities 97 used to do this thing called uh, all-request lunch hour. So this is kind of like all-request lunch at church. Um, if you have a passage that you're interested in reading or studying, um, I would love to hear what that is. So there are pieces of paper. You only get three options, so I'm limiting it to that. And I can't promise you that whatever you write, we will study, all right? But I want to know, like, I have some ideas as to things we might study, but I want to know if I'm even close to what you all want to study. So I don't have the next eight weeks planned out. I have today planned, and that's it, all right? So I love your feedback. If you want to write on those, you can drop them off in the boxes or at the Discover Awaken booth. And if you can't find one, there are some in the back, all right? Everybody good? Okay, so you get, uh, you get it's, it's sort of like, choose your own adventure, right? Choose your own adventure. All right, stand if you will. We're going to read the entirety of chapter 19 in the book of Genesis. Starting in verse 1, it says this. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them, and he bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house so you can wash your feet and spend a night, and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. 
before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, by the way, pause, this is a sermon for mature audiences. I, I, I mentioned that on Facebook this week, so in the event that your children are here, you might want to just uh, think about that. Okay, here we go, because this is where it gets strange. <laughs> Uh, before they had gone to bed, all of the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them, shut the door behind him, and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them to you, and you can do with them. You can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We will treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anywhere else, or anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons or daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place." The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters, who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. And as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he said to them, very well, I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. By that time, or by the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. For from the Lord out of the heavens, thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all of those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt." Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Pray with me. God, this morning, uh, we have entered into a story and a text that is a long, long ways away from us. And yet, I would submit that it's closer than we think. And so I pray that as we navigate it, as we enter into it, as we try to make sense of it, that you would be very, very close to us, that your spirit would guide us, that you would uh, take whatever lack of precision and, and articulation I have and make it clear. Um, God, say what you want to say this morning. That's my prayer. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Wowzer Bowser. <laughs> Are you guys ready for this? Here we go. 
Um, so I was in New York City. Laura and I went to this conference for church planting, urban church planting. We learned a lot. We're excited to share some of that with our friends on, a, on, our, on our leadership team here. And I thought while I'm in New York City, usually when I leave and, I, and I'm not here on Sundays, I typically don't go to church because um, I kind of have to go to church every Sunday. So when I don't have to, I don't. And I feel like what some of you feel like when you're like, you know what, we're going to go to the park today. So sometimes when we go to L.A., you know, my mother-in-law's like, oh, do you want to go to church with us? And I'm like, I'm really sorry, but no. But this time, I thought, you know what, I want to check out some of these churches in the city that are doing some of the things that we're thinking about doing. So Laura and I showed up at this church that shall remain nameless. And uh, we walked in. And it was in a school. It was upstairs in the second level. And so there was a person at the bottom of the stairs said, are you here for church? We said, yes. They said, upstairs, uh, there's coffee and donuts, but you can't bring it in because you can't bring it into the auditorium, so make sure you finish it while you're outside of the auditorium. Fair enough. We walk up the stairs. That was the last human that we talked to in our entire experience at this church. Save the one moment where we did grace and peace to one another, like passing the peace, their version of passing the peace. So we walk in, and we're... We are like blinking lights. We've never been here before, right? Like standing places, looking around, trying to figure out where things are or where to go. We then proceed to walk like right down in the middle of the church. We are like right here. If the rows go all the way across, we are smack dab in the middle with nobody like within three or four seats of us, like right in front of the preacher, okay? We're right in the middle of the action. After the gathering is over, we stand up. Oh, this is, it gets even better. We go to take communion, right? We go to, so we, we're like the last couple people in, in our row to be served communion. We go up and we go to the front. There's four communion stations, one here, one here, two in the back. We go up to this guy who's the lead pastor and we get to him and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm out of wafers. We don't have any wafers. We don't have Jesus for you. <laughs> so he says, would you mind going to the back uh, and being served there? Totally cool, no problem. At this point, Laura's like, I'm done. She walks back into the row. All, everyone around us is watching this happen, right? She walks back into the row. I turn around, I go this way, only to be passed by the woman who was serving in the communion in the back, who is also out of wafers. So I go back up to the front, and the lead pastor, had, he had found some wafers for me. I'm the last person to receive communion. The whole church is watching this happen. So I take the body and the blood, you know, I do the deal, and I go back and I sit down. After the gathering, we stand up, and again, we are like blinking lights. We're new here. Not a single person said hello to us. We, 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 we actually like would kind of encroach on a conversation. You know, there were like all these little cloisters of people talking throughout the church. These people knew each other. Maybe 150 people in the room, okay? So not a large group of folks. There's all these conversations, and we would sort of like hang at the edge of a conversation, right? Crickets. So then we'd sort of move to another conversation, and we'd go over here. Nothing. We stood in the back for three, four, five minutes, just... Nothing. Now, you might be wondering, why am I telling this story, and what on earth does it have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah? (laughs) I've got you right where I want you. This morning, I want to argue that this passage that we read is not primarily nor even secondarily about same-sex attraction or behavior. Rather, I want to argue that it's, it's about something else that is at the center of the story I just told you about our experience in New York City. 
Now it'll take me a little bit of time to get there. So here's how I want to organize my thoughts. I want to first talk about what this passage is not about. I want to argue my case that this is not about same-sex attraction or behavior, primarily or even secondarily. All right? Then I want to try to say, what is this passage actually about? What's, what's being said here? And then I want to try to draw a couple of implications from a passage that's about 2,000-some years old with a, a, a woman who turns to salt and a whole bunch of other crazy things that happen. I want to see if there are some implications for us at Awaken. <laughs> no big deal, right? Um, I'm not going to address the horrific nature of the, the exchange or the, the horrific offer that Lot makes in lieu of the angels. I'm not going to really talk about that, uh, the fact that he offers his virgin daughters to the men instead of the angels, because there's only so much one person can cover in, a, in an amount of time. And so while that is absolutely mind-boggling, I don't want to pass it over and have you think like, seriously, we're not going to even mention that because that's crazy. I get it, but I'm only going to do so much today, okay? So what is it not about? What is it about? Implications. Are you guys ready? Here we go. First, what is this passage not about? Arguing primarily. It's not primarily about same-sex attraction or behavior. Why? First, I would say storyline. What do I mean by storyline? I mean this. Genesis chapter 19 is not written in a vacuum. It doesn't just show up out of nowhere. It's actually a part of a really, really large and important conversation in the book of Genesis that has nothing to do with same-sex attraction or behavior. And it's the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, and Lot. If you remember this story, it goes back to Genesis 12, and this, this sort of narrative of, of Abram and Lot, Abraham and Lot, goes from 12 all the way to about chapter 19 when Isaac shows up, and then Lot kind of fades off the scene. But for this section, it is the dominant motif, and it's the dominant conversation that's happening. So what is it? In Genesis 12, Abraham, Abram, is asked to leave, the text says, leave your uh, your your country, your people, and your father's house. And the assumption is that Abram is to bring his wife and children and nobody else. And it reads in chapter 12, verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So this is the beginning of a motif in a conversation that plays all the way through 12 to 19, and it's absolutely crucial, and it's this comparing and contrasting Abram and his actions of faithfulness and Lot and his actions of unfaithfulness and what happens because of it, of which Genesis 19 is the culmination of, right? So Lot, at the beginning, Lot lifts up his own eyes, it says in Genesis 13, and he sees the plains of Egypt and he likens it to the Garden of Delight. Now, if you know the story of the scriptures, you know that Egypt becomes the anti-kingdom. It's the antithesis of what Canaan and Israel is to be about. It's not only a location, but it's a spiritual reality. So Lot likens the plains of Egypt to what? The Garden of the Lord, the Garden of Delight. He does so by lifting up his own eyes and saying, I want that, I'll take this, this section of land. Contrasting Abraham, Abram at that point, he allows the Lord to lift up his eyes and causes him to see, the text says, the, the, the land of Canaan that he will give to him. So right off the bat, you see these two things. Lot lifts up his own eyes. Abram allows the Lord to lift up his own eyes, or lift up his eyes. Um, Lot gets caught up in this battle and gets taken captive way, way far in the north by this crazy group of kings. Abram has to go and rescue Lot, his nephew. 
Abram is visited by angels in chapter 18. He prepares them a feast. He welcomes them. He pulls out all of the stops. Lot, on the other hand, prepares unleavened bread, if you caught that in our passage. Uh, Abram pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah. He prays for the city that God would spare them in chapter 18. This is this passage where God sort of appears to change his mind because of Abram's prayers and pleading for these people. Lot says, save me, if you caught that in chapter 19. So over and over and over again, Lot's wife dies as a pillar of salt. Sarah dies as the matriarch that's sort of the covenantal link to God's people in the story. So over and over and over again, you have Abraham and his faithfulness and Lot and his unfaithfulness. Lot is essentially, he's the, he's the butt of all the jokes, right? He's the anti-hero in the, in the story. He's the person who's the character that's over and against or contrasting the hero and all of his actions. We see this in literature all the time. Gollum in Lord of the Rings is the anti-hero. Uh, Dexter, if you ever watch that TV show, he's an anti-hero. Right? It's the contrast to the hero and the person who's faithful in the story. Um, what becomes of Sodom and Gomorrah and the level of sin that they collectively have sunk into is directly connected to who settled there and whose choice it was. Lots. So if you're going to say, what's happening in this passage, what's being said, you have to read it in a context. And that context would say that this is a story that has begun in Genesis 12 and is playing itself out, of which this is the culmination. So that is a primary thing that's happening in this passage. Secondly, I would say, if, we're not gonna, if I'm going to argue it's not about same-sex attraction or behavior, why? I would say we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Martin Luther, our good friend Martin, 1500s, he says sola scriptura. He says sola fide, sola gratia. This is all things from the Reformation. Sola scriptura, which means, class, scripture alone. Well done, well done. Or uh, uh, part of sola scriptura is this idea that scripture has no authority outside of itself. Said differently, scripture judges scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. So if we want to come to the text and say, what does Genesis 19 really mean, or what's being said, we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. You following? Okay. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, 13 different times, Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned. All right? The prophets, Isaiah, rants against them for marginalizing others, for murder, for theft. Jeremiah has words for them. Those words are about adultery, idolatry, the abuse of power. Amos and Zephaniah both have words, calling calling them out on oppressing the poor and pride. Of the 13, Ezekiel is the clearest thing that we have about the sin of Sodom in in the text. And here's what it says. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter, like can't get any more clear. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. So even the Old Testament, as clear as it gets, that's the sin of Sodom. It's not about same-sex attraction or same-sex behavior. In fact, it's, it's totally on another level. In the New Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned eight times. Two of those, 2 Peter and Jude, have something remotely to do with sex. If Genesis was written somewhere between 1400 BC, let's just for the sake of the illustration, You have almost 1,500 years of writings in the scripture plus extra biblical sources and not a single one of them 
says that the sin of Sodom is about same-sex behavior or attraction. So you cannot use this passage to say or condemn or prohibit same-sex behavior or attraction. It's just not what the text is about. Now pause, in case you're wondering, I'm arguing for same-sex attraction or behavior. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is trying to say this passage cannot be used to say you shouldn't do that. It's saying something totally other than that. It's in a conversation that is over here, not over here. Are we tracking? So that's what I want to do first. What is it not about? It's not about that. What then is it about? If you've ever been in a relationship or a marriage where you're arguing about something and you, you have this realization that, oh, this, whatever it is that we're talking about, is really about that. You ever had one of those moments? I think that when we read this passage, we look at the this and we take it this way, many of us. Or maybe you've been a part of the church or religion and that's where it was taken. And I would say this, Genesis 19, is really about that. That that is this. <laughs> I want to argue that there's at least two dominant themes happening in this passage. And the first is the radical call for inclusion and welcoming the stranger as the people of God. Let me say that again. The radical call for inclusion and welcoming the stranger as the people of God. So for the people of God, the Israelites, paramount, essential, absolutely at the top of the list in terms of holiness and what it means to follow God was hospitality. The welcoming of a stranger into your home. In Israel in particular, it was said that no man was to consider his home his own. Said differently, uh, one rabbi says, let thy house be wide open and let the poor be the children of thy house. Many Israelites would often hang a curtain in their home to signify whether or not there was room for a stranger to, to spend the night there. Some rabbis would say that there should be four doors on every home in Israel, one, to let, uh, one in every direction to let a stranger come from wherever they may. The Talmud says this, which is an, uh, an extra-biblical Jewish source. It says, The entertainment of travelers was as great a matter as the reception of the Shekinah, or the Shekinah. The Shekinah is the glory of God. So if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, you guys remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Right, that's what they're chasing, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant, there's two angels. They're the cherubim. And it says that they, were just, they, they sat there, and in between the cherubim was the Shekinah glory, or the presence of God. So the literal presence of God was manifest among the Israelite people, and it, it was hosted on the Ark of the Covenant, right? So what the rabbis are saying is, hospitality is as great, to receive someone in, in hospitality is as great of a thing as to receive the glory of God. That is huge. It's massive. They say that, greater, that, uh, that hospitality involved as great and greater merit than the early morning attendance in the Academy of Learning and Studying Scripture. So to welcome someone in hospitality was equal to the study of the scriptures, which is saying a lot for the ancient Jews, yes? My point is this. At the heart of this passage in Sodom and Gomorrah is the failure to engage strangers and welcome them as the people of God because it was a direct reflection of the God that you worshipped. Israel was known among the nations for this countercultural way of living, and part of that was welcoming the stranger into your midst as your own. 
What is it about? I would say it's about the radical inclusion and welcoming the stranger as the people of God first. Second, I would say, it's about what happens when sin and evil get ahead of steam. You can't read this passage and bypass the fact that there are some crazy things happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where I would say maybe tertiarily, I think that is a word, you could connect sexual activity to this passage, but this is what happens when sin and evil get ahead of steam. Luther, I've quoted him twice, I don't know that I've ever done that in one sermon, Luther says that sin is the heart turned in on itself. So sin, the nature of sin, the essence of sin is when the heart is turned in on itself. The heart turned in on itself is only concerned with feeding itself. And so when you find a group of people or a city or a culture who collectively, whose collective hearts have turned in on itself, you find actions like this possible. Where the only thing that is, uh, that is to be done is to satisfy the appetites and longings and desires of the self. This is the complete disregard for anyone and everything outside of me. This is when sin gets ahead of steam going in a direction. And when we get here, not only do we fail to see another human being and welcome them and provide hospitality, but I would argue we begin to consume others around us. And it takes all kinds of different forms. In this particular form, we see what happens. In the ancient Near East, there was actually a practice where uh, essentially um, same-sex rape would take place in order to completely and utterly humiliate the other and degrade their humanity. So if you conquered a group of people, the ultimate act of humiliation and degradation was for the men to rape the men as a way to say essentially, you're not even human. Let me close with... uh, What are some implications for us? If this is what it's not about, right, and what it really is about is hospitality and welcoming the stranger and when sin sort of gets ahead of steam going in a direction, what are some implications for you and for I at Awaken? I would say first and foremost, welcoming a new person into this community is a shared responsibility. It is something that we collectively own together as a community and as a church. What we experienced, what I experienced, what Laura and I experienced a couple of weeks ago was a community, from our perspective, limited as it was, who had farmed out the responsibility to welcome and to be hospitable to somebody else. Have you guys ever heard about that, like the ambulance factor? Like if a a car accident happens and a group of people gather around and somebody's tending to the sick or the, the hurting, and somebody says, somebody call 911. Sociologists have studied this, and what happens is nothing. Everybody assumes that somebody else is going to do it. And then people start dying. I want to suggest that as the people of God, it cannot be the case that we farm out the responsibility to welcome the stranger and the new person into our community to somebody else. It's your responsibility, and it's my responsibility. And friends, this isn't about awake and growing. This is because the gospel and the good news of Jesus is on the line. People come looking for authentic community, and when they're stuck on the outside of circles trying to get in and can't find their way in, that is a tragedy. And I just cannot stand here and lead in this community and not challenge us to do better on that. 
If you've, ever, if you've been here at Awaken and that's been the case for you, can I pause for just a second and collectively say that that grieves my heart greatly and can I, on behalf of our community, ask for your forgiveness? And I want to invite us to do better. I want to invite us to stand, to, to move towards, one step towards taking responsibility personally for the people who are sitting next to us. Because when we don't, and people come and are ignored or can't find their way in while they try, it is a representation of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And friends, that's not the good news of Jesus, amen? So an invitation, whatever it looks like for you, to take one step towards personally taking responsibility for welcoming people who come and try to find community at Awaken. Secondly, I would say, is there any place in your life where the seeds of sin have taken root? Is there any place where you've made small sacrifices to satisfy appetites, longings, or desires? Have you made any small compromises that, have, that, that if left unchecked, could grow in the wrong direction? I think that Shows like House of Cards and Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones, like they work and people get into them because we recognize that that level of degradation is actually somewhere deep inside of all of us. And if left unchecked, it goes that far. So can I just ask for a moment this morning, for maybe a, a, a really important moment of honesty and confession. Maybe it's just a, a, a solemn moment of confession this morning to say, you know what, God? There are seeds that, have been, that are taking root in my life and I have made small compromises to satisfy my appetites and longings and desires that are not of you. Stop, repent, the scripture says. Teshuva, turn around, go in a different direction. And lastly, as an implication, I would say this, and this is a big one. So long as I'm the pastor at Awaken, we will work hard for this to be a safe place for people to come and to be. To ask hard questions about faith and life and God, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, whether you are black or white, whether you are gay or straight, it doesn't matter. This community, so long as I'm a part of leading it, will work hard to be a safe place for people to come and to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus and who is God and what does God look like. I, and, and, and in particular, the LGBT community. I cannot tell you how many people have come to me and said, I want to bring my friend to church, but I want to know if it's safe. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard of people who have been absolutely decimated in the name of Jesus who either are walking through this themselves or who have family who are and cannot for the life of them find a safe place to come and to explore what it means to follow Jesus. And I am not asking you to state your position on this. That is not what's happening here. Because we'll talk about, I, I recognize this is probably going to show up on the cards and we're going to talk about it more. But there is room for both positions at Awaken on this issue. Whether you are for or you... you, you, you because of your conscience and scripture, can't condone. That's not the issue. This will be a safe place 
for any and all who come to find Jesus and to find out what does God look like and what does it mean to follow him. Amen? Amen. I want to invite us to a time of silence. I recognize this is, a, this is, a, this is the deep end of the pool. And um, when Laura and I left this church a couple of weeks ago, uh, I couldn't, I was like physically and emotionally, I was depressed. I was like dejected. And I thought of these people who have come to awaken who have told me this was the last stop on my way out the door of faith. And thank God they found a community that they could live in and explore and follow this Jesus. And I hope and I pray that that is the case and that is we hear story after story after story after story about welcome and hospitality and a safe place for people to explore. So I want to invite you to a time of silence. I want to invite you to consider maybe one of those challenges this morning. So if you would, uh, band, you guys can come forward. We'll close with uh, a song or two. But as, you move, as we move into this time of silence, an invitation for you. Is there a step that you can take? Have you in any way abdicated responsibility to welcome and be hospitable as a community? Have you in any way personally abdicated responsibility to welcome strangers and new people in our community? And is there anything that the Lord might be inviting you to move towards? Are there any seeds of sin that are taking root in your heart that if left unchecked could grow into something very, very ugly? Maybe in this time of silence, you spend some time with the Lord asking about that. And what does it mean for us as a community to make a safe space for people of all gender, of all race, of all class, of all walks to explore what does it mean to follow Jesus? Holy Spirit, in this time of silence, speak to us, move us, guide us, challenge us to become more and more and more the individuals who follow you and the people communally who follow you and bear your name, I pray. My friends, my brothers and sisters, a couple of things. One, thanks for being the kind of church that can do this. I have every faith in us that we can walk where we're walking into difficult and hard conversations. Thank you. Um, I sat here earlier this morning listening to you all sing, and I was just overwhelmed with, like, you know when you're home? And like how comfortable that is compared to like when you go to somebody else's house and you don't know the traditions and you don't know what to say or not to say and you just, it's just hard to be there. And I sat here this morning and I felt like, ah, God, thank you for this church. Two, um, our temptation is to run from tension, to like move away from it. And so if there's any sense in which you feel like, ah, I don't know if I can be here. I want to I encourage you, challenge you, exhort you to move towards it, not away from it. To stay in the conversation. To be a part of it. To learn how to have convictions, but to do so with generosity and with compassion and with grace. To learn how to speak to one another where people don't get hurt um, and, and run over. 
I think that's important. I think that's part of faith. I think that's part of spiritual maturity and growing up is to learn how to do that. Um, and third, if you have need for prayer for anything this morning, what a more appropriate day. If there's something that the Lord is stirring in you, please take advantage of our folks who are here every week. They want to pray with you. They want to pray for you. Um, please do so. Josh is going to lead us in uh, a chorus of the doxology, which I thought would be a fitting way to end, to sort of step into the stream of the historic Christian church, people who have been singing this chorus for literally thousands of years. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So sing it with your heart, sing it with, with everything you got if you can, and with a, a sense of God, bind us together in unity as your people. This was Jesus' prayer in John 17, right? That they may be one, that the world may know that you and I are one. So let's sing this together with that as our prayer. And that's the benediction. There will be nothing else said for me. Okay, here we go. Praise God from blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly home. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter, Awaken Community. See you next time.